Welcome to Rare on Air, the monthly podcast from Eurodis, Rare Diseases Europe. I am your host, Julian Poulan, and once a month, we will be exploring the challenges, experiences, and successes of people who live with a rare condition. In today's episode of Rare on Air, we return to the topic of newborn screening, the practice of testing newborn babies shortly after birth for a variety of genetic, metabolic, and congenital disorders. I return to the topic because our organization, Eurodis, has just conducted a survey of over 5,500 people from across Europe's rare disease community, spanning 38 countries. The major survey received the views of people living with a rare disease and those close to them about whether and how newborn screening programs should be expanded. To help us understand the importance of a rare disease diagnosis as early as possible in life, I speak to Juliana Dimitriou, who is the president of the Coffin-Lowry Syndrome Association and who lives in Romania with her eight-year-old son with Coffin-Lowry Syndrome. It took over seven years for Juliana's family to receive a diagnosis for her son, Victor, a journey that could have been avoided had he been diagnosed at birth. Reflecting on this story, I then speak to Jesse Dubief, our social research director, who helps us break down what our survey on newborn screening has revealed. Juliana and Jesse, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much, Julian, for the invitation. Thank you for having us, Julian. So, Juliana, of course, I understand that your son, uh, your eight-year-old son, has Coffin-Lowry syndrome. Can you please tell us about the moment, though, when you first learned that he may have some sort of condition that would require a diagnosis? That's true, Julian. Initially, indeed, there was a difference in discovering he has a condition versus what type of condition uh, he exactly has. And as a mother, first time when I was alerted that something is going wrong with my baby, it was when he was 10 days old and they suggested I should go to physiotherapy with my baby. And that came as a shock to me, suggesting that something might be wrong. And then the journey started. After that, we, we realized that he wasn't meeting the milestones. And so we started many visits to geneticians, neurologists every couple of months. So gradually it uh, became obvious that indeed something is, is wrong. And um, although they were comforting us all the time, they were saying it's not exactly wrong. It may be wrong. It seems wrong, but he's at the edge. He's almost, almost reaching his milestones. And uh, you should just continue with, with the therapies. So we believed that. And I think there was something really wrong for, for us as a family and for my child, because we have put a lot of stress into recovering therapies to make him good. Although biologically, he could have never reached his peers. So coming back to your question, it was at 10 days when, when something started to feel out of the normal. And then uh, we believed it's not. We went to all these therapies. We made an assessment when he was one years old and they said his uh, developmental uh, coefficient is at 60% uh, compared to his peers. We continued then daily therapies in the hope that he would reach them. From behind, he would meet uh, everything uh, and he would be like his peers. And then we did a second assessment when he was three years old. After all this struggle, daily struggle with, with he, he would even have three therapies per day, something like that every day. 
And the second moment was when we did the second assessment when he was three years old, his developmental coefficient was 30%. And that was devastating for me. It was a tremendous shock because they were saying he's almost normally thriving. You could recover everything with therapies. We invested all our mental energy, all our time, everything into those therapies. And um, like two years later or three years later, he was half, half the development he had when he started. And while we are doing those therapies, he was thriving. He was doing better and better, but only compared to himself. So we, we didn't know it was our first child. And we knew it's not exactly how it was supposed to be, but um, we didn't really know the reality. And so when, when I got that assessment with 30% and they were saying that my son is qualified for a severe handicap certificate, because this is how they call it in Romania. It is called a handicap certificate. So they are, they are giving it this paper to you to say that your son has a severe handicap. Right. And with no diagnosis. I had no diagnosis just because he wasn't developing properly. That was the reason. I see. So terrible not to know. It's terrible to to be optimistic when you don't know the reality. Absolutely. And I imagine that must be such a devastating and demoralizing experience all in one. If I may ask, in what ways might his development have been lacking? Was it physical? Was it intellectual? What were the ways in which his development seemed behind? Well, in many genetic diseases, the development is both psychological and uh, motor. So as a baby, the first things that you notice are about the physical ability. He's not holding his head at the proper time. He's not sitting, standing, walking, babbling, speaking. So then when, when you are starting with the verbal, speaking, understanding, babbling, you are also gradually shifting towards the cognitive development, right? Yeah. So it's the modern development and the cognitive development, and they are both connected. Right. And so you had this really horrible experience of these tests constantly disappointing. And while you had all of these results from different tests, it seems like you were never any closer to a diagnosis. But could you tell us about your journey to getting a diagnosis for Victor? Yes, it took a terrible long time. It took seven years from his birth to the day that I got on the paper what his diagnostic is. The moment to find out the diagnostic, I cannot say it's so clear to underline because it was a process. As I was saying earlier, for three years, uh, we were visiting every couple of months geneticians. So they had suspicions. They were saying something might be wrong. Then it's not wrong. So at uh, three years old, when I earlier shared that I got a um, handicap certificate for some disease that it is severe, I started to search for diagnostic on my own. So because the visit to the specialist didn't go anywhere. So I started, I started Googling. I started looking for medical applications. I started emailing various hospitals. I started taking private uh, genetic tests. And I was so devastating that my son has something severe and they are not able to tell me. I started to investigate this on my own. And when uh, when he was three and a half, I reached to the suspicion that he might have Austin-Lowry syndrome. 
So just based on my associations with, with his signs, with the test, with the uh, pictures from everybody else, phenotyping, reading, genetics, I think I can qualify for, for, for two years of genetics <laughs> specialist or something. Yeah, that, that was the first moment when, when I, I understood that he might have this syndrome. It was terrible. I didn't like it and I didn't want to accept it. I was like in a total denial phase with no support from anybody. So I just dropped it for half a year. I didn't want to know. And then his first teeth fell at four years and a half. Right. And that struck me because it was too early and it was a sign of Cochlear syndrome. So once his front teeth fell, I understood that I cannot deny anymore. And the possibility to have it is greater and greater. So I contacted a patient association, the Foundation for Cochlear Syndrome in U.S., and based on, on the pictures, on my story, on the medical things, she decided that we belong there and she opened the group for us. For me, that was my first confirmation of the diagnosis. It was when, when I entered that group, I understood it is. I see. Is the diagnosis, I saw everybody. I saw, I read all the posts. I saw all the pictures, all the videos. It was my son multiplied in each country. It, it, they were like twins. Basically, I, I was in shock. I, some girl that had a brother with Coffin-Lowry syndrome thought that my son <laughs> is her brother. Oh, wow. And I was, again, so frustrating that it was so easily. I mean, I was looking at, at those boys and I was saying, why didn't they tell me for four years and a half? Why didn't anybody realize? Why? Why did I lost all this time? And yet I didn't have any medical confirmation that I had that. It was just my opinion and the president of the foundation from the U.S. After I got into this group, then I started the struggles to medically confirm because deep inside me, I was still hoping maybe it's something very similar and it's not. Or maybe it's similar and I need to take care of something else. I really wanted to know because it has medical implications. It has risk on all sorts of organs. And I cannot treat without any diagnosis, anything. So then I started to do all the genetic tests and pointing to Coffin-Lowry syndrome specifically. And uh, the result came by email. Okay. Two years later after I started. Oh, wow. I had visited U.S. meanwhile, uh, also for diagnosis. Uh, they didn't find anything, but I had uh, corresponded through email and through tests through the genetic laboratory from Romania. They sent samples to France. So it was a very dedicated uh, clinician in France. We never met her. We never met her. Everything was, was on the email and she was so supportive and so careful. And I cannot be thankful enough to her for all the help that she did without any costs. Wow. It was just through medical collaboration between her and hospital from Romania and her open to talk to me as an informed mother of an undiagnosed child. So she was explaining everything. And after two years, she said, we bought new uh, medical um, machines in our laboratory. I'm rerunning your son's test. And then a couple of weeks later, she said, I found it. We were right. You were right. It is Coffin-Lowry syndrome. It is this and this and this and this is the mutation and this is everything. This is the transcript. We have the answer. So I was happy. If you can imagine... I was so happy when she emailed because I was so prepared Yeah, because it was such a relief to know that this is what it is. 
I mean, we are almost two years now, one year and a half. And I realized for seven years for which we were seeking for this diagnosis, our lives was on pause. I now discover things that happened around me, which I couldn't see because I was so worried about my son and so engaged into finding genetic evidence that I didn't see the world around me. And my son was so stressed with all those therapies to thrive more than he could biologically ever can that I was failing to see every little good thing and I was failing to be happy for what he was in that moment. I see. So for us, since then, since we discovered the diagnosis, there is life. I mean, life is, is much better. We can live in the present, not fighting for a future that I know now will never come for my child. That sounds very melancholic in a way, but it's an incredibly impressive story how you identified yourself without a medical background, his diagnosis, or arrived at a suspicion that would ultimately be correct. It's also very sad and although impressive that this scientist who you mentioned was able to help you get a diagnosis, it's sad that their generosity was what was needed and you couldn't rely on the health system to certainly arrive at a diagnosis that was needed. But Juliana, of course, you mentioned that when you did get a diagnosis, that did improve things. But in what ways did the diagnosis lead to improvements in his health? Was Victor able to receive more specialised forms of healthcare? Well, yes. So first of all, mentally, he is much better because he's less stressed by us. He's not going now every day to therapies. He's only addressing the therapies that he needs in the moderate amount that he can handle. And his uh, family environment is much better and relaxed because uh, we have more time for ourselves. In terms of medical care, uh, he is now in the moment when, he, when we can prevent. So there are comorbidities and risks associated with Coffin-Lurie syndrome that now we have the chance to address them. So we go to orthopedic periodic visit because uh, we learned there is a high risk of scoliosis. And in some cases, it even led to death. Again, there are heart complications that we are preventing and lungs complications. And all of these can lead to death. So the literature is uh, reporting uh, people with Coffin-Lurie syndrome that have died because of these complications, because of people were not aware of them. They didn't have any chance to treat them. Wow, that's incredibly scary. Yes, it's scary, but it's also optimistic because we think that if we know in time, we can avoid them. I see. How do you believe Victor's life and how do you believe your family's life would have been different if this was something he were diagnosed with at the point of birth? So if my son had been lucky enough to uh, have the chance of screening, of newborn screening, and his mutation to be in a place where it would be found, as in many other Coffin-Lewis syndrome cases, it would have uh, given him and our family seven years back. I think his childhood would have been less stressful. Yeah. If I knew he had Coffin-Lurie syndrome, I would definitely still have therapies, but on a moderate way and addressed properly to his needs. I didn't have spend so many nights in learning genetics. Yeah. And then being tired the second day at my job and uh, not having enough uh, mental uh, relaxation to handle uh, family life the, the next day. All this is a burden for, for everybody. 
it's a it's a very all-encompassing burden <laughs> there's nothing that isn't touched it's at this point that i would like to ask some questions to you jesse what exactly is newborn screening though what does it involve Thank you, Julien. Yes. So first of all, newborn screening only involves uh, screening for diseases at birth for newborns. So it doesn't involve anything that is coming before birth. And it can comprise physical exams, hearing tests, or even uh, drawing a few drops of blood to detect conditions at birth. And that would allow for early identification and treatment of severe and rare diseases. But it's not just the tests that we conduct at birth to diagnose some diseases. It's also really a comprehensive system that includes many elements, uh, such as the communication of the diagnosis and the of the information to the parents for them to know exactly what this diagnosis entails, but also the follow-up care or even the storage of the samples, the blood samples or uh, biological samples for secondary use. So Eurodis has, of course, recently done a survey into newborn screening and the views of people who live with rare diseases and those close to them. Can you talk to us a little bit about that survey? Yes. So we conducted a survey through our uh, rare barometer program. And uh, the goal of the survey is to ask their opinion on newborn screening for rare diseases. So screening rare diseases uh, at birth to those who are directly affected by a rare disease, either that they are living with a rare disease themselves or that uh, they are parents or close relatives to people living with rare diseases. So the goal is to contribute to the debate, bringing the perspective of those who are directly affected. So uh, we, as you word it, we wrote the questionnaire that we then disseminated to uh, people living with rare diseases. And we wrote it after discussing its content with a, a committee composed of experts on the topic. And then the questionnaire was uh, also shared uh, with our members of uh, patient organizations of people living with rare diseases and translated in 24 languages. We distributed the questionnaire from June to July 2023. And in total, we had more than 6,000 people and the survey worldwide. 90% of those participants are living in Europe. And so this is the results I will be talking about. And that represents more than 5,500 people who answered to this survey. So generally speaking, does the survey reveal whether people who live with a particular rare disease would have liked to see their condition diagnosed at birth? Yes, a majority of them. Uh, so we asked them if they would have liked to be diagnosed at birth themselves or if uh, they were family members, close family members of people living with, living with rare diseases, if they would have liked the person living with a rare disease to be diagnosed at birth. And in the two cases, yes, the majority would have liked either themselves or the person they care for to be screened at birth. Uh, even if we can see still a difference uh, between the opinion of the patients, of those who are patients themselves and, and of the carers. Carers are really willing to have had their children diagnosed at birth. 1810 told us that uh, they would have liked their children to be diagnosed at birth. But patients themselves, those who are patients themselves, it's a bit more shared and it really depends on the characteristics of the rare disease and also on their experience uh, with their disease. What we can see is that they're quite, uh, they would have liked to be diagnosed at birth when they're disease when their first symptoms appeared when they were really young as infants or children and when they had a long diagnosis journey uh, so when it took years to be diagnosed 
so overwhelmingly a majority of people with the rare disease or, or people who are family members of people who have a rare disease want to see newborn screening expanded and want to see the condition that they're touched by uh, screened for. It isn't unanimous. Why is it that some members of the rare disease community might not want to see their particular condition screened for? Well, sometimes what they're telling us, because also um, it was difficult to really adapt the questionnaire to every specific condition, is that, first of all, there's no possibility for their particular disease to be screened at birth. So that's part of it. Sometimes also, especially for patients whose symptoms typically appear when they are adults, they are very happy that they didn't know beforehand uh, that they were at risk. But at the same time, also some patients would have preferred to know. Uh, even if the symptoms appeared later and as they were adults. Some patients also are saying that it was hard for them to deal with everything that came with the fact to have a diagnosis as a child. And so some would have preferred not to grow up with uh, uh, having the extra attention from uh, their parents because of their rare disease compared to their siblings. Or uh, some of them also fear to be stigmatized or discriminated against because of the, their diagnosis, for instance, uh, when they are looking for a job or uh, in insurance or at the bank in some countries where the diagnosis can bring difficulties in society. People are less in favor of automatic or uh, large screening of uh, rare diseases at birth. Of course, those fears are probably a bad reflection of where society is at in terms of supporting people who live with a rare disease, not just obviously in the medical senses, but in the societal senses and in terms of inclusion and equality. Juliana, what would you say to a policymaker in Romania or in the EU about why health systems should screen for Coffin-Lowry syndrome and perhaps other rare conditions which currently aren't screened for? Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Julian, for this uh... Chance. <laughs> what I would say is that as a mother of a Coffin-Lowry syndrome child, I would say that newborn screening gives a chance uh, for families to properly address the condition that they are facing with treatment, uh, if they are available, because some comorbidities have treatments, maybe not the entire syndrome, but for example, epilepsic seizures have a treatment and you need to know they are in the context of a syndrome. I would say to this politician that it allows the families a chance to properly address their mental health. It allows the family to offer a better environment for the childhood. It's beneficial for the entire patient community and medical community because it allows people to start fighting for a treatment. There are many conditions that do not have a treatment, but there are few conditions that started to have treatments just in the last years because of the patient advocacy activities, because of patients pushing for these therapies. I am one of them. I Coffin-Lowry syndrome doesn't have now a diagnosis, uh, a treatment. And I, I lost seven years in fighting for a treatment because I was fighting for a diagnosis. Yeah. And treatments are possible. Every child deserves a chance to treatment, even if that treatment doesn't exist already. Absolutely. That's a really important point. Jesse. Can I say um, more, Julian? Oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> I have more to say to politicians. <laughs> sure. So, I don't know. It's so important for me, the newborn screening. I think that also for authorities, if you 
speak in their terms, it also saves money. Think about we are lacking geneticians, right? There are just too few geneticians compared to how many people need these services. If you visit, like I did, every couple of months, a genetician, you waste that resource. You are losing that time and money rather than having a test at, at birth. And you just unclutter that specialist and you give the chance to other people, to more people to, to visit the genetician. Right? Yeah, I see. Also, in terms of social integration, it gives you the chance to find the child's place in society, to grow with the society, to make the needed adaptations for his condition, to find a suitable kindergarten, to find a suitable community environment, to talk with other people with similar conditions is really important for, for a child to, to have this chance of being socially integrated. Yeah. So, Jesse, how optimistic should Europe's rare disease population feel about the expansion of newborn screening? So it's still quite uncertain how countries will expand their program. What we know for sure is that there are many discussions ongoing, many research projects with uh, pilots to screen rare diseases at birth. But there are also many, many differences across countries uh, in the number of diseases that are currently screened at birth and in which diseases are screened uh, at birth. In some European countries, there can even be more or less diseases screened at birth depending on the risk. Uh, so this is also why Eurydice uh, is actually advocating at the European level to uh, harmonize the principles for newborn screening across Europe so that the chances for a child to be screened uh, with a rare disease and diagnosed early does not only depend on the place where you live. And so we can see in our uh, latest survey that, yes, a vast majority of people living with rare diseases are in favor of newborn screening because it can, again, faster uh, diagnosis, avoid harm and ensure people's involvement in society. But what they also tell us is that we have to make sure that newborn screening is conducted in good conditions. Those who are not so much in favor of newborn screening, which is a minority of uh, people living with rare diseases, raise concerns on the consequences that the knowledge of the rare disease can have in the family dynamics and in society in terms of uh, anxiety or discrimination. And so this is also why we advocate for adequate policies for newborn screening across Europe. Newborn screening cannot only be about conducting the tests, but it has to be just for, like for the diagnosis of any rare disease at any age. Uh, it has to be accompanied by uh, communication of information on the disease to the parents, to the patient. It has to be accompanied with follow-up care and it has to be accompanied with uh, making sure that the person who is living with a rare disease can be really part of society as a whole. Definitely. But it does seem that the, the views of the rare disease community are pretty strong on this area. And the experiences of those like Juliana make a very solid case for the need for their expansion and for more uh, diseases to be screened across more countries and regions right across Europe. Juliana, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me for this important discussion. Thank you, Julian, for having us. Thank you, Julian.